Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome back to Powerlines. From Ukraine to the world. A podcast from Message Heard and the Kiev Independent. I'm Jakub Parushinsky. Each week, we're going to be analyzing the undercurrents of the war in Ukraine, bringing you analysis from across the globe to explain its context and consequences as the war continues. This week, we're turning our gaze from east to west to look at the evolving nature of Western support for Ukraine from the US to Germany and beyond. Ukraine's ability to resist Russia has been unexpected and awesome to watch, and it relies a lot on the bravery of Ukrainian soldiers. But beyond that, Western support has been absolutely critical to Ukraine's war effort. Over the course of the war, we've seen an evolution in the types of weapons that Ukraine is asking for. A year ago, it was long-range missiles called HIMARS. Now it's F-16s, American fighter jets. We constantly come back to this idea of a Wunderwaffe, a wonder weapon, that through its superiority can settle the outcome of the war. That idea is even present in the article that General Valery Zaluzhny, the head of Ukraine's armed forces, wrote for The Economist. He talked about technological progress as the way to overcome a stalemate and potential defeat. But what was once a relatively unanimous support coming from the West is becoming more fractured. You have especially far-right voices clamoring for lower levels of support for Ukraine or outright halting it. And the voices that are asking for a peace deal with Russia are getting louder. Whether real or imagined, in Ukraine there is a growing fear that Western partners will put pressure on the country to settle with Russia to do a peace deal that will not actually provide security and stability, but will only allow Russia to re-equip, re-arm, and attack again. To discover more about these issues, we invited Justyna Gotkowska onto the show. Justyna is the deputy director at the Center for Eastern Studies in Poland, known as OSW, and head of the Security and Defense Department. It's those last two subjects that she focuses on, primarily looking at Central and Eastern Europe, as well as Germany and the Baltic states. Her work at OSW, since the start of the full-scale invasion, has been really fascinating and insightful. So we were thrilled to have her on to learn some more about just how important Western support for Ukraine is and how it's been changing over the past two years. Justyna, welcome to Powerlines. Thank you for the invitation. Today, we're talking about the evolving nature of Western support for Ukraine, and your work at OSW focuses on European and NATO security policy, especially on Europe's eastern flank. So has the prospect of a Russian invasion always been a threat, or is that something that appeared since 2014? 
I think that Russia has been perceived as a threat for Poland uh, since 2014 and the annexation of Crimea, invasion uh, in Donbass. And already then uh, Poland started to seriously think through its security and defense policy, raise the budget, modernize the armed forces. But definitely uh, 24th of February 2022 has been a last wake-up call uh, for the political elites and especially for the society that the war can be very close to Poland and can also influence Poland directly and Russia can stage an aggression against a NATO uh, eastern flank country, if not in a couple of months, then in a couple of years. So the fear at the start of the Russian invasion uh, against Ukraine in 2022 was real. Then I think that situation calmed down with the Russian being not successful against Ukraine on the front. But I think with the current situation, people start to worry that if the front will be freezed or if the Russia may be successful in uh, Ukraine militarily or politically, sooner or later, Russia, depending on the international environment, Russia may also start some aggressive operations uh, against NATO countries on the eastern flank. I think Russia has shown that it is an aggressive actor. It's a reactor that does not respect the rules-based order, let's say, what other states would consider typical red lines. That's something that it wouldn't stop Russia's decision making. And as you mentioned, if it manages to, quote unquote, swallow or deal with Ukraine, then it will look further west. Let's come back to that in a second. But one thing that the European states, especially the states on the eastern flank, have done as part of their defense policy is provide a lot of support to Ukraine to make sure that Ukraine is where Russia is stopped. How significant has this support been? Well, I think that uh, if we consider the current situation, Ukraine is to a very large extent dependent on Western support of ammunition, spare parts, military equipment, and other types of weapons. And without Western support, we are risking that Russia make break the front line in Ukraine. So Western support for Ukraine is crucial for Ukraine to not only to win this war, if so decided uh, by the decision makers in Washington and Berlin, but maintain the front line. From Kiev's perspective, Ukraine really depends on, on the decisions and political situation in Washington, in Berlin, in Germany, France, and especially Western Europe, since uh, the Eastern flank countries have given so much weapons away to Ukraine during the first year of war that it will be difficult for them, and it is difficult for them now, to provide Ukraine with more meaningful amounts of military equipment uh, for its offensive operations. Of course, there are still deliveries of spare parts, ammunition, and some military equipment from, from the eastern flank countries. But this is incomparable with the situation in the first year of war, where when the deliveries from Poland, from Czech Republic, Slovakia, Baltic states, really helped Ukraine to survive and to fight back. I think it's worth underscoring for our audience just how sort of how drastic those decisions by Eastern European governments were, especially in the uh, early months of the war. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it felt like a lot of the countries on the eastern flank essentially emptied their stockpiles 
you know, in a matter of of months or certainly within the first year. I mean, we have stories of sort of Poland um, leaving airplanes in the forest on the border with Ukraine um, without officially sort of moving them across. I think that's an important thing for our audience to realize. A lot of the support has sort of come into falling into one or of two categories. There is what seems like the more mundane, more high in terms of scale, kind of basic equipment, artillery, shells, armored vehicles, the things that are a little bit less glitzy and glamorous that don't necessarily grab the headlines. And then we have lots of different high-tech weaponry and that weaponry has evolved uh, during the course of the war. You know, initially it was HIMARS, Abrams tanks, Leopards, now Atakams, F-16s. What's sort of been more important or how have these two played out? Um, if you agree with this kind of dichotomy at all, because mm -hmm. it feels like there's two different things happening here, the Wunderwaffe and then the thing that Ukraine actually needs um, on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that uh, Ukraine needs different kinds of equipment and weapons. So you cannot really say that one is more important than the other. So uh, with regard to the land forces, uh, here I think the effort and the deliveries coming from the eastern flank were crucial, especially in the first year uh, of war, as I said, because they allowed Ukraine to you know, refill the equipment that was lost uh, to strengthen the, the capabilities, especially with regard to armored heavy capabilities. Poland delivered Ukraine more than 350 tanks. That's a lot. More than 200 armored uh, personal carriers, more than 70 modern uh, howitzers. So this equipment in the first months of war came especially from the eastern flank countries, former Warsaw Pact members who still had in stocks uh, equipment that uh, Ukraine in this or other uh, version used. And this was uh, very helpful because Ukrainian soldiers were quick to adapt them, uh, not to, to uh, operate uh, this equipment and didn't need uh, that much time for training. We see this uh, right now with the Western heavy land equipment that we need to train Ukrainian soldiers on using this equipment in Europe. And we can and simply, you know, delivering uh, the equipment to the Ukrainians is not sufficient as but not only land equipment matters, uh, defense matters, and we see Germany concentrating, especially on them, air defense systems providing Ukraine with modern weapons. So we have also uh, the discussion right now about delivering Ukraine airplanes, fighter jets uh, like F-16s. That will take time. We have discussion about delivering the long-range missiles. And uh, these weapons, weapons are equally crucial because they allow to strike the back of the front line in uh, Russian-occupied territories or in Russia and are crucial for Ukraine to diminish the ability of Russian forces to strike against uh, Ukrainian uh, military. How would you characterize the current state of the war? We've had the word stalemate thrown around a lot, um, I think maybe a bit incorrectly, because the fighting is ongoing and it's quite intense. But certainly, you know, we have Zaluzhna talking about positional war, the front line is not moving. What is the current situation in your view? And what's the kind of Western support that is needed at this moment? 
yes, we have a kind of positional war. We have allowed Russia to fortify uh, its positions. We have delivered too late and too little for Ukraine to uh, be able to regain uh, more of its uh, territory last year. And I think these are the consequences of, in part, a failed Western strategy, which was based on fear of escalation and use of tactical nuclear weapons by Russia and Ukraine. So the deliveries, Western deliveries of military equipment for Ukraine came a bit late for Ukraine to use them on the battlefield and therefore allowed Russia to gain time to fortify the positions, which makes right now uh, very difficult, as we see, for Ukraine to, uh, to break the front. But at the same time, I would not call it a, a frozen front no? and, and a stalemate because all depends on us, on the West and on the quality and quantity of ammunition and military equipment we will be able to provide Ukraine in the coming weeks, weeks and months. Uh, because I do believe that Ukrainians right in, in the, at this time are still able to make uh, progress and conduct successful operations. So the combination of ammunition delivery, new types of equipment, equipment to deal with the uh, minefields that have been set up by, by Russia is needed. And this is a concerted effort, combined effort of different kinds of equipment that Ukraine needs now at this moment and will need in the, in the coming months. And I think this is right now put under question due to political developments uh, in the West. So I was about to ask you, last time we had this period of preparing for the counteroffensive, it was also a question of delivering various arms from the West, of preparing soldiers, preparing plans. You know, now again, we have this situation where it's a different combination of weapons, and probably the plans are better, and you can see that people recognize the importance of training and so forth. But if political will failed there, how are we doing now? And what is sort of the big roadblock? The big roadblock is the political situation, especially in the US, and the difficulties to push through the Congress the next financial package that uh, will finance or shall finance uh, the military support for Ukraine, financial support and humanitarian support for Ukraine. This is uh, over a hundred billion US uh, dollars worth package combined with support also to Israel and to securing the US southern border. And due to the, the situation um, in the House of Representatives, there are problems to uh, adopt it in the Congress. And the situation is politically difficult. And I think people in Washington right now don't really know how this story will end, when and if and in what amount this uh, financial package for Ukraine will be adopted. So there is no guarantee whether Ukraine can count and in what time frame further military support uh, from the US. And now uh, the work is ongoing on resolving the situation uh, in the Congress and adopting the financial package and making the support for Ukraine being granted for the coming uh, months until the uh, US next US presidential elections. And apart from the situation 
in the US, we have a difficult situation in Europe. As I was talking about the eastern flank uh, and limited possibilities for military deliveries for Ukraine, but also Western Europe, in my opinion, has not treated this war and Russian aggression seriously enough. The arms industry production has not been uh, sufficiently and quickly enough we have problems with arms production that is too slow um, in Europe to make up for the possibly delayed or decreased uh, U.S. Uh, deliveries. So I think that we are uh, facing very difficult weeks and months to come due to political problems in the West. Let's uh, sort of get back to Europe in a second, but just sort of staying on the U.S. Can you give us a bit of a, a sense of a time frame? You know, America famously gets wobbly when it comes to political decision-making towards the end of the year. Frequently, there are budget crises. There's a lot of other deal-making that happens that gets in the way of sort of making clear and quick and efficient decisions. What happens if we, say, have several months rather than several weeks of delay on this process? Well, since Ukraine depends on military deliveries from the West and the U.S. provides the biggest bulk of uh, these deliveries, both uh, with regard to ammunition and, and other equipment, and Europe will not be fully able to produce and deliver more equipment, more ammunition for Ukraine instead of the U.S., Ukraine might face a very difficult situation on the front line. Russian forces uh, may break the front line and Russian offensive uh, might prove to be successful. And we might face the situation with Russian forces advancing simply. And I hope the situation will, will not materialize. I hope that the U.S. Congress will uh, resolve the situation. But I'm not sure about the time frame and I'm not sure about the scope of the financial support that will be granted for Ukraine. And Europe will face a, a challenge and situation to find a solution to the situation. Uh, otherwise, we will have a very fluid situation on the front with Ukrainian forces having difficulties with maintaining the front line as it is now. There's some things that I wanted to get back to that you mentioned, which is that the support package was raised initially in, in convergence with the package of support for Israel. Now, we're already, you know, quite some time over a month into the Israeli-Gaza war. And, you know, perhaps I'm mistaken, but it does not seem like U.S. aid to Israel is something that would move the needle. I understand that they want it and they need it, but the U.S. aid is not an existential issue for Israel right now. Mm. Or perhaps you, you see this differently. To what extent is this a threat for Ukraine? Uh, well, I think this is not existential for Israel, but uh, this is very political for the U.S. And as I understand the politics in Washington, this is uh, an additional argument for the Republicans that are might be questioning the help for Ukraine to adopt the package. And therefore, uh, the White House does not want to split it, uh, would like to adopt a whole package, meaning financial help support for 
for Ukraine together with support for Israel and support for uh, securing the southern border because it fears that it might be very difficult to push through the Congress and especially uh, through the House of Representatives support package for Ukraine only. So I think this is uh, political tactics on part of, of the White House to have a combined package, uh, Ukraine, Israel and, and the border. And it's not really so important for Israel to get additional military support from the US. Coming back to, to Europe now, we've had Ikhet Wilder, the far-right populist from the Netherlands, coming out as the largest winner of the Dutch parliamentary elections. Though that does not mean that he will be able to form a coalition. That's a different story. There are risks in other parts of Europe. To what extent is that a threat, especially given the fact that Ukraine already has a enemy within the European Union, which is Hungary, which is clearly blocking any sort of support? You know, Orban gets emboldened when he has a partner in crime, quote unquote, to block deals with and veto deals with. Is that something that, you know, should be keeping Ukrainians up at night over the coming year? Of course. And I think this is the consequence of the strategy devised by, by Washington and uh, and Berlin betting on long-term or, or longer support for Ukraine or uh, on Ukraine not winning quickly over Russia. And we are faced with right now a need of long-term support, military support, financial support for Ukraine, which is difficult for European, Western European societies to bear. And then in a situation where we have economic difficulties, when we have a migration crisis coming to Europe again, not from the Ukrainian side, but from the Middle East, from Africa, we have right-wing parties coming into power, right-wing parties that are less supportive supportive of uh, Ukraine or would like to stop, block or diminish uh, the amount of Western help that goes to Kiev. So we will have more and more problems within the Western camp in supporting Ukraine on many levels. So the longer war serves Russia more than the West, is more beneficial for Russia. But we need in the West understand the situation we are in, the stakes of this war, and try to maintain, at least maintain, if not increase the support for Ukraine. And that will be increasingly difficult. Uh, and 2024 will be a crucial year, in my opinion, for Ukraine because of the U.S. presidential elections, uh, the turmoil, political turmoil that we are entering in the EU. And the question will be how much uh, support Ukraine will get and hence whether it will be able to maintain itself vis-a-vis -vis Russia as it is doing now. So you recently spent some time in Germany looking at how the situation is there. How how does Berlin see this? I think that the discussion in Germany is very multifaceted. If you read the German newspapers, if you listen to German uh, security and defense experts, they share the analyses and the recommendations on a Western strategy that we have in Warsaw or across the Eastern flank. So Russia needs to lose this war. We need to maintain and increase our military support for Ukraine as quickly as possible. 
possible. We need to deliver Ukraine a new quality of weapons. We need to invite Ukraine to NATO in order to show Russia that the game is basically strategically over and that Russia will not be able to extend that sphere of influence over Ukraine also in the future. And we need to open the accession talks uh, with Ukraine in order uh, to provide the, the country with a positive future perspective of the EU membership and uh, a perspective for, for rebuilding the country in general. But I think if you analyze the decisions of the cha German chancellery, Chancellor Scholz and his advisors, I think that the outlook from up there is a bit different. I think that still the strategy um, that is uh, largely shaped by the chancellery is governed uh, and guided very much by the fear of escalation on part of Russia, by Russia using uh, tactical nuclear weapons. It's guided by not understanding what is at stake, by thinking that Russia will be satisfied with a part of Ukraine, that we can have some peace negotiations and a solution that uh, will allow Russia to occupy parts of Ukraine and that will allow the rest of Ukraine to become a sovereign country. And then we can think about NATO membership and or um, EU membership. So from the perspective of the German chancellery, as I see it, there are can be a modus vivendi, a way to find a solution for shaping Eastern European security and European security in general with Russia. And I think this is a very different analysis that we have here on the Eastern flank, where we see Russia as an aggressive actor that wants to challenge the European security architecture and order, and uh, that wants demise of the EU and demise of NATO, and wants to extend its sphere of influence not only over Ukraine, but also over parts of Central and Northern Europe. I think that here we have a strategic difference and therefore we have strategically different responses and answer to this war. And these differences are then being shown in discussions within NATO, for example, on NATO's uh, membership of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something that is a very specific phrase uh, that Germany does not want Russia to win. That's not quite the same thing as wanting Ukraine to win. Is that a reflection of the nuance that the German chancellery is taking? And does that translate into perhaps the kind of support that it is ready to give, the level of engagement? Mm, uh, definitely. You have this phrase and this narrative coming from the chancellery. You mentioned it. Uh, Ukraine cannot lose this war and Russia cannot win that. And uh, still the chancellery sticks to the, this narrative, which is widely criticized by the German public, by the German media and the German experts, because it does not state very clearly that Ukraine needs to win this war and Russia needs to lose it. And there is a difference in meaning, which is translated in the German strategy shaped by the chancellery. If we say that Ukraine cannot lose this war and we, do, we don't say Ukraine needs to win this war, we don't provide Ukraine with weapons that uh, will allow Ukraine to win this war. And therefore you have this uh, debate that now is a months-long debate about delivering Taurus uh, long-range missiles to Ukraine by Germany. That would uh, put under question, for example, the occupa Russian occupation of, of Crimea. Germany does not want to do that. 
or the chancellery does not want to do that because it fears first escalation and second it thinks that after all we will need to find a solution and a peace uh, deal with Russia and this peace deal with Russia will be that Ukraine will have to give up maybe not only Crimea and Donbas, but parts of southeastern Ukraine to Russia for peace. And I think, and I shared this analysis also with German expert, that this is a thinking and an analysis based on hopes, based on illusions mm -hmm. that Russia may be an actor that we can deal with, that we can satisfy with some concessions. I think this narrative and this analysis question here on the Eastern flank very much. And even if Russia would be willing to go for such a, for such a peace deal, that would be tactics only that would discourage Russia from attempts to subordinate the whole of Ukraine and to start renewed war after some time in the future. Yes, the, the the vision is very much that Russia would use a peace deal to potentially, you know, just regroup, rebuild its logistics lines, and then come back for more. The fact that Germany or that Berlin is perhaps has this appetite for peace talks or this readiness to believe in peace talks, to come in on good faith, that's certainly something that carries weight, um, even if it perhaps doesn't sway the other Western partners, no doubt it's, it has impact. What do you think that means in terms of the shape of the peace talks? I mean, even in Ukraine, there is a, I would say nobody is really talking about potential peace talks, but there is a growing appetite for de-escalation or containment of the fighting because it has taken a very brutal toll on so many people's families uh, at this point. And so there starts to be a sense that, look, if we can get to some kind of deal where we do have a accelerated path to NATO, I think that's something that would make sense and, and is different from a peace, just a peace talk that is essentially a ceasefire for a couple of months or a couple of years, and then, and then we go back to fighting. To what extent is that is that something that's realistic? Mm. I don't think it's realistic due to several factors. The first one is there will be no NATO invitation and no NATO membership in such a situation because Germany and I think the US treat this option as a bargaining chip in future possible peace negotiations with Russia. And I don't believe that in such negotiations Russia would be willing to agree that it gets parts of Ukraine, Crimea, Donbass, southeastern Ukraine, and the rest of Ukraine can join NATO and can join the EU. This is not what Russia wants. Russia wants to subordinate the whole of Ukraine. Russia wants to go beyond that. And this is not the Russian goal. So therefore, I think that this talk about uh, about peace negotiations it is a bit illusional because from the Russian perspective, I'm not sure when Moscow observes what is happening right now in the West, in the US, in Western Europe, the difficulties with the continuation of military deliveries to Ukraine, the political turmoil, both both in the US and in Germany, for example, starting the right-wing parties coming to power, I don't see the incentive that Russia has for 
any real peace negotiations. If it enters such negotiations, that might be a very short pause in the war. And I think Russia would put uh, really high expectations in such peace negotiations. So that would be tactical. And I really doubt that we would achieve a meaningful peace uh, agreement with Russia that would provide the Ukraine in its current shape, security, and then a prospects for joining NATO and for joining the EU. I think both Washington and Berlin are very cautious about NATO involvement in Ukraine and NATO's membership for Ukraine, um, even in such a scenario. So what could a peace ne negotiation just look like in practice? I mean, we're talking about a deal. Well, first of all, it's probably not a signed deal because I can't imagine Zelensky coming and, and signing such an agreement after, you know, the political commitment and the personal commitment that, that he has made to uh, victory. So it's most likely something that would be unsigned, perhaps signed by other parties, um, security guarantees, which Ukraine had security guarantees before 2014 and before 2022. So it's curious how you could make them more tangible and then sort of closed or, or hidden clauses regarding the fact that there will be no NATO membership, even if that's something that isn't said out loud. Is this, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking out loud, mm. but is this sort of the format that is being imagined? Well, I don't believe in such a peace deal, first of all. That, so yes. uh, the, 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 this I, is the first clear, point. Yeah. The second point is that I really doubt that Ukraine is politically ready for any talks on this. I don't think Russia is ready on uh, talks on, on a peace deal. If Russian will take up this idea, that would be only a tactical tactical instrument to influence the West. And I think also why the White House, I talked about Berlin, that that it sees as a possible scenario and uh, a scenario that could materialize in this year. But I don't think that Washington thinks in the same way, or at least in Washington, you have different voices, different opinions. And I think the one that still prevails is uh, one about the long war and the need to prepare for, for it. The problem is the US Congress and the situation in the House of Representatives and the, uh, the problems with the new adoption of the new uh, financial package for Ukraine, which influences the U.S. calculations and um, which maybe in some circles therefore think that uh, an attempt to forge or to to make a deal with Russia could be worth uh, worth trying. I mean, I'm not going to ask about the EU accession because that's something that I think in Ukraine, people do not realize just how much of an unmovable bureaucratic process that is. There are no shortcuts through EU bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see that this is something that can be accelerated. So that also means that essentially the Western partners don't really have that much to offer in terms of positives for Ukraine. There is only the question of ensuring support or the lack of. Well, that's true. The accession talks between Ukraine and, and the EU uh, will be 
difficult. I hope they will start at all. I think that the EU has to discuss also, I'm not sure whether we, we within the EU, there is a clear vision on the accession of Ukraine and possibly other countries, whether we stick to old procedures or whether we think about a new approach to enlargement policy. I think that uh, right now we focus very much on uh, this traditional way of uh, EU accession. But I think with the process being stalled or being delayed either by the unpreparedness or un, uh, within the EU or unwillingness of some countries to start this process or due to unpreparedness of Ukraine to enter and to go through this process, we might end up with discussions on some kind of stage accession, mm. phased in accession. We are not yet there, but I can imagine uh, scenarios where uh, these discussions uh, might come back. Final question. Do you think that if support ended, would Ukraine continue to fight? Does it have any alternatives? Uh, Ukraine, as it is dependent on weapons, munition, equipment from the West, in my opinion, it will it might face a, a defeat in this war if the the support from the West will stop. I hope it will not. Uh, such a scenario will not materialize. Yes, uh, but we we might fa face a, de a decrease of Western support to Ukraine, which will be equal difficult for Ukraine. But maybe the Ukrainians uh, will be able to manage um, the situation. Yeah, I mean the one thing that I will say is that based on on what you're saying, it kind of looks like the strategy that Vladimir Putin took on, not initially, but several months into the war, which is essentially that, look, as long as we keep up the level of aggression and just wait it out, we're more patient than the West. Yes, they are united now, but their resolve is fickle. It can turn into sand. It can fall apart quite quickly. Well, that actually seems to have been somewhat correct. That is the weak part, the weak spot at least. Yes, Russia is betting on that. But at the same time, Russia is weak itself. Russia has problems to maintain this war. Russia has problems with ammunition stockpiles, with equipment. Russia will have economic problems uh, due to sanctions. And in the long run, I think that we as the West are stronger than Russia. Yes. I think we need to keep and man maintain the support for Ukraine. And we need to understand that Russia, after all, is a weaker actor, betting on us that we, due to democratic procedures, will stop the the military support uh, and other support for Ukraine earlier than, uh, than, than Moscow. But overall, I do believe that Ukraine, with the help of the West, can win this war in the long run. But the West needs to be... United needs to understand what is at stake, needs to maintain the support for Kiev. And in my opinion, in such a situation, there are good chances that we will wait out Russia, uh, since Russia is the weak, weaker actor. But for that, political will is needed. And I think this political will is currently lacking both in Western Europe and partly in the US. And this is the problem.
Well, if history is any guide, Russia breaks very, very slowly and then all at once. So let's hope that that happens sooner rather than later. Yusena Gutkowska, thank you so much for talking to us on Powerlines today. It's been really fascinating. Thank you once again. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Powerlines, from Ukraine to the world. And a big thank you also to Justina for coming on. We'll be back in two weeks when we'll be looking at the domestic scene in Ukraine, exploring the political tensions in Kiev as we draw towards the end of the year. Don't forget to subscribe and rate Powerlines wherever you get your podcasts, as it really helps others find our show. To find more podcasts like Powerlines, look up Message Heard wherever you're listening to this podcast and find us on our website, messageheard.com, or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by looking up at Message Heard. You can also follow the Cave Independent on Twitter and Facebook, at Cave Independent, and Instagram, at Cave Independent underscore official, to get the latest news and stay up to date with our coverage. If you're interested in more in-depth analysis of the reconstruction of Ukraine, be sure to check out insights.caveindependent.com. You can also support the Cave Independent through our website. Our members make this show possible, and we really appreciate their support.